the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The constant companion to me, besides the fetching Mrs. Hugh over the past two weeks, has been a magnificent book. Go and get The Bully Pulpit. Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism by Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, who joins me now. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, welcome back. It's great to have you back on the program, and congratulations. What a wonderful book. Oh, I thank you so very much. That's grand to hear. Well, I didn't, you know, I'm from Ohio. I should have known more about William Taft. I should have known more about the family, but I'm from northeastern Ohio, from the land of McKinley, not from the land of Taft down in Cincinnati. And I think you've given this man his due, maybe for the first time. I, I tend to think of myself as informed on this, but are, are you running into that a lot? Yeah, it's a really nice feeling because, you know, sometimes I think our presidents just get caricatured, you know, and because he came after Teddy Roosevelt, one of the most colorful, interesting, mentally curious, physically vigorous guys we've ever had, he fell in the shadow. And we remember that he ran in 08 and won, that he lost in 12 when he ran against Teddy, and that he was fat. And he's so much more interesting. He's a really good man, decent, honorable, fair, um, really great personality that Teddy thought he had a more amiable personality than he, Teddy, did. And he deserved to be treated, you know, as a human being with a, with a really interesting family background. So it was really fun because most of the presidents I write about, everybody else has written about them. So, and that's true for Teddy as well. But this time I was able to bring somebody who as not as many people knew about, and it felt good. There are three women in this story, two men and one friendship. This is really a history of a friendship and really one of the most remarkable friendships in political life I've ever really come across. So was it a discovery to you or had you known the depth and the degree uh, to which the neighbors on DuPont Circle had become fast friends early in their careers? No, I didn't realize how intimate the friendship was until I read the letters between the two men. And, you know, men in those days used to express themselves more openly about their emotions. I mean, Teddy would say, my beloved Taft, you know, and Taft would write to him about how much he missed him. And you could tell that from the time they were in their early 30s, as you say, when they lived near each other on DuPont Circle in Washington, one solicitor general, the other civil service commissioner, that something clicked, even though they were so different temperamentally. I mean, Teddy's so much restless, constantly moving and taft, more deliberative, more judicial. But there was something about their both being young reformers, caring about corruption, caring about undoing the political bosses that drew them together then and through their lives until they end up running against each other in 1912. Now, I'd like you to give, if you could, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the brief overview of, of Taft's remarkable career, because I didn't know he'd been Solicitor General. I didn't know he'd been on the Sixth Circuit. I didn't know he'd been the Governor General of the Philippines. I didn't know any of this. Well, he starts off really as a young judge, and that's what he always wanted. He went to Yale and then Cincinnati Law School. His father had been a judge. He dreamed someday of going on the Supreme Court. And then he got appointed from that judicial appointment to Solicitor General. And at first worried about it because it meant he'd have to be a partisan. He'd have to be arguing one side of a case when he was used to being much more of a judge. But he did well, as he did in every job along the way. And so then he got appointed by McKinley 
to be the governor general of the Philippines. And at first he said, what? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. I was against the occupation of it. He said, that's precisely why I want you there. And he really did a fine job. The Filipino people took to his warm personality. He went out among the people. He was setting up the laws for the country. And then Teddy asked him to become a member of the Supreme Court because he needed the court at that time badly to okay the legislation he was passing. But he couldn't leave the Philippines. So he said, I can't leave now. I've got a responsibility. Though he desperately wanted to. It only made Roosevelt respect him all the more. But then he finally persuaded him to come back and be a member of his cabinet. As he said, the foremost member of my cabinet, you can still have dealings with the Philippines, but I need you here, not only as Secretary of War, but as, as my guy. And then you know, and, back. Uh, as we speak at this hour, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, uh, many, many Marines are preparing to deploy to South Sudan to rescue Americans there. And as I read your pages on the Philippine insurrection, the Samara massacre and all of that, uh, there have always been these sorts of trouble spots. And Americans on the spot have either responded better or poorly. He was really a remarkably good colonial executive. He was without any training either. And America indeed didn't have much training in being a colonial power at that point. This is when we're first exercising, you know, what later became a more common power. But I think it was in part his temperament that was suited for that job. You know, he not only traveled the country and met with the people, but he invited the Filipinos of different racial backgrounds to come to the palace. He learned the dance. I mean, these things like minor things, the Filipino dance, and he was big, you know, and he had a smile. And even though it may, people may argue historically whether we should have occupied them in the first place, while he was there, he really did a good job. Now, of course, many people know Teddy Roosevelt from Mornings on Horseback, and then they pick up again with the path between the seas. And in between, he's the police commissioner, he's the governor of New York, he's done all these remarkable things. Was it hard to go over? I mean, you wrote the book on Lincoln as well, so you know what it's like to go over ground that is much traveled and pretty hard packed. But I think there's an opportunity here for people to learn about Roosevelt that they didn't know anything about him before. Well, you know, what I was hoping, it was the same thing I needed with Lincoln. There's no way I could just write a biography of Lincoln when there's 14,000 books on him. So by choosing to focus on the team of rivals and looking at the other people in his cabinet, whether it was Seward, Chase, Stanton, or Bates, it gives you a contrast to Lincoln. And sometimes you see things by seeing how somebody's different or similar to another person. So similarly, even though I was treading familiar ground when he became police commissioner, civil service commissioner, governor, vice president, president, the fact that the friendship was tapped was by my side, and I could look at their two of their lives and see what was different and why one really succeeded much more as a public leader and the other one wanted really always and finally became a judge. What are the differences in temperament? And it gives you a perspective, I think, hopefully, that you wouldn't have just by dealing with him alone. I'm talking with Doris Kearns Goodwin about her wonderful new book, The Bully Pulpit. It's linked at youhewitt.com. Now, Doris Kearns Goodwin, here's one episode I didn't know about TR. I didn't know about Senator Platt. I didn't know about the franchise tax on corporations. But it certainly did remind me uh, the way that uh, TR dealt with the opposition of his senior Republican partner. You wish that President Obama would be open to finding. I wish. I'm not saying you wish. I wish that President Obama would be open to finding accommodation with his legislative opponents in the way that you deftly illustrate Roosevelt was open to finding accommodation. No, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think what Roosevelt understood, he knew that in the long run, he needed his party, the Republican Party, to deal with some of the t troubling aspects of the industrial order. You know, he needed workman's compensation. He needed some sort of taxing system. He needed to deal with food and drug products that were flooding the market. He needed railroad abuse. He needed antitrust legislation. But he knew that he needed the leaders who were opposed to these things 
to go along with him, or else he would destroy the party in two. So he was he dealt with them. He met with this guy Platt against the advice of liberals and people who thought, what are you doing meeting with this political boss every week? And he was able to bring him along pretty much. I mean, there were times when he went further than Platt wanted him to go, but he understood that everything was a compromise, that you could get as far as you could, and yet you kept moving forward, and that's what he did. Uh, there's also an amazing series of portraits of the women here. And Nellie Taft, I know you draw on Washington history of the Capitol quite a lot. I had no idea she brought the, the cherry blossoms to Washington, D.C., and I had no idea that she was the literary force that she became or that Edith Roosevelt was this well-rounded and this intimate. How difficult was it writing the story of these women? Well, what was so interesting to me about these two women, again, was the contrast between them. Because Edith Roosevelt had grown up in New York, actually, from a wealthy family, close-knit to where Teddy Roosevelt grew up, and they were friends from childhood, but then her father lost his business and became an alcoholic, and the rest of her life, what she wanted was just a stable home, because they had to move from one place to another. And when she marries Teddy, finally, um, she doesn't want to be a political figure. She has no interest in giving her political opinions to the press. All she wants is to create a sanctuary for him. So she looks in one direction, sort of, to women in the past, whereas Nellie Roosevelt, Nellie, Nellie Heron Taft, rather, um, from the time she was an adolescent, was an unconventional young woman. She just somehow craved for a larger life than simply a wife and mother and thought she'd never get married and instead teach and hopefully have some ambitions until she meets young Will Taft, who promises her and really keeps that promise that she will be his partner. And it's she who loves politics. It's she who goes to you know, the bars in Cincinnati and loves to talk to laborers and merchants. And she's the one who spurs him on to take the solicitor generalship, take the governor generalship, run for president eventually. And she's really his chum. And it's an extraordinary close relationship. Both, both women and men are. They both give their men what the men most needed. And they found for themselves what they wanted. Doris Curtin's good one. I got to ask you, are you, uh, when you follow up a huge bestseller like Team of Rivals, uh, how hard is it to get back in the game? Obviously, you don't have to write anything you don't want to. Are you just not happy unless you're working away at a massive best-selling <laughs> no, book? This is what I love to do. I mean, it's just, you know, I feel so lucky to have had a career where I just catapult myself back into a different era every, you know, eight or ten years. You know, so it was FDR and the World War II era and then Lincoln and the Civil War and now Teddy and Taft and the Progressive Era. So... I would feel odd not having one of these dead presidents to live with at some point in time. <laughs> well, I've got to say, also pausing the subtitles is the golden age of journalism. And you bring to life McClure's magazine. And I did not know anything of Sam McClure, his hard scrabble existence, his life beginning in Ireland, or the amazing group of journalists that he brought together at McClure's magazine. And I'm wondering, you know, I go back. To Gov 30, right? I listened to you lecture, and I don't think I heard anything about McClure's Magazine and all of Gov 30 on American government. How much of a discovery was this to you? Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, all I knew, I knew Ida Tarbell. I mean, that name I knew. But what happened is when I started reading the great historians about the progressive era, whether it's Richard Hofstetter or various other professors, they would mention McClure's Magazine as being as important to the progressive movement as was Theodore Roosevelt. So I then started looking into Sam McClure and realized that he had this extraordinary group of people working with him at the same time, not only Ida Tarbell, but Ray Standard Baker and William Allen White and Lincoln Steffens, and I had heard of them. So, But I just hadn't realized the impact that this group of comrades at that time had on really exposing 
the corruption that was there at that time, what needed to be done, and mobilizing the public to want to do something to soften the problems of the industrial order. McClure's magazine gets up to 400,000 in circulation, which is pretty extraordinary given the era of economic desperation in which the magazine was launched. And he, he has this abundant energy, bounds around the globe, signing up talent. And your portrait of him uh, with Ida Tarbell in Paris is, I guess, well told. I'd never seen it told before, but you referenced that it was well told. And now it's all gone. And I don't know that there's even anything remotely like it. Do you think there is? Well, I think the hard thing is that you needed someone like McClure who was willing to bring these people on the magazine staff as staff reporters, which was a rather new thing at the time, pay them for a couple of years to just do research so that the investigations and the exposés that they produced were not sensationalist. They were really impregnable works. I mean, it was when Ida Tarbell did her Standard Oil or Ray Baker, the railroad thing, much of it still stands up today. I don't know where those resources would come today to be able to back up somebody like this, whether the people who were so talented as they would would stay together, um, whether or not people, more importantly, their pieces were like 20,000 words. Sometimes they were in series, like 12 or 15 in the series, sometimes 40,000 words. Would we be reading them today? That's the scary thing. Do we have the attention span today to really delve into what something is about in the country, some issue in that depth? And they, they, everybody talked about it then. There were editorials. There would be columns. It became the common conversation. These people became household names. And William Allen White writes, what's the matter with Kansas? And it, it travels all across the country. But I wonder, the target set is different. Where you had Standard Oil or or some of these other great combines, now the big engine of uh, of the world is the American government. It's, it's like Obamacare, Doris Kearns Goodwin. I don't know that there exists a group of journalists who are disposed to take on what is actually the end game of the progressive movement, which is this vast federal government that we have. Well, that, that is an interesting contrast because in this era, at the progressive era, the argument was that these vast combines of business needed to have some regulation on behalf of the public because there was no regulation at all at that time. And I think most people, even of different political persuasions, would agree today that you needed something to deal with the food and drugs that were on the market that were not doing what they were supposed to, that the meatpacking plants that were unsanitary, you know, the working conditions in the tenements or in the factories. And at that time, it was just the beginning of governments taking over the functions that they never had before. And now you do. You're right. The big thing that is out there is government. And the interesting thing about Teddy Roosevelt is that even in his time, he told Lincoln Steffens, when Lincoln Steffens, one of these guys said, well, what if I not only study the states and the city's corruption, but the federal government, too? And he gives him a letter and says, you go tell anybody they tell you anything as long as it's the truth. You know, I can't imagine that happening today. No, it's and I, healthy. I, I, it isn't healthy. And I, I made a lot of notes on journalism that I went through this because it, it, these journalists were lifelong committed people. They stayed the course. They also were extremely talented and very well read. And they worked at length, as you point out, the Ida Tarbell series on the Standard Oil. But they were also inextricably linked up with political figures in a way I don't know that journalistic ethics would allow today. I mean, the, the relationship between William Allen White and Roosevelt that wouldn't be appropriate now, would it? No question. I mean, he's the most linked to Roosevelt politically, and he's also a political figure himself. I mean, he's in the 
Republican Party in Kansas. He's an activist. The others worked harder to maintain their integrity, and they criticized Roosevelt when they felt it was necessary, and he would argue with them. And, you know, Lincoln Steffens eventually went further left than Roosevelt. Ray Baker ended up voting for the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson. Ida Tarbell was always afraid of seeing Roosevelt too often because she said she wobbled in his presence because he was so magnetic. But William Allen White comes from a tradition in the 19th century before these national newspapers you had partisan newspapers. That's all there was. You know, if you're a Republican, you read your paper. If you're a Democrat, you read yours. If you're a Whig, you read yours. And in each paper, it would be a totally different story. Lincoln in the Republican paper gives a speech, and he's carried out on the shoulders. And he's on, in the Democratic paper, he fell on the floor. <laughs> so this was the beginning of national journalism and national magazines. So there's still some holdover to that partisan past, and William Allen White is one of those. Now, a, a, a larger question. Could a could a character like Teddy Roosevelt survive in American politics today? I think a Lincoln could, uh, but Teddy Roosevelt is is a caricature of himself almost from the moment he burst onto the national stage. But they loved it. When you talk about his, and I'll come to this a little bit later, approaching Chicago for the Republican convention uh, in which he contests with Taft for the nomination, he's greeted by tens of thousands of people. I, I just can't imagine anything like this anymore. I don't know. You've got to hope that somebody like Teddy Roosevelt, who knew how to communicate with the people, who gave them everything he had. When he went on those train trips, those whistle-stop tours, stopping in village stations along the way, just getting out of the car, talking to the people, accepting all these crazy gifts they would give him, you know, toads and lizards and cows, waving endlessly in the middle of the train just in case somebody's there. I mean, that funny story when he's waving frantically the group of people and they seem to be giving him a cold in different reception. He realizes he's waving at a herd of cows. <laughs> but he had that desire to connect to them. And somehow the newspapers caricatured him even then with the cartoons. But they loved him. Uh, tell me, um, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, William Howard Taft has a bad rap. has a great reputation as a chief justice and a lousy reputation as a president. But as I read your book, it's not really deserved. And, and that's why, would you explain to the audience why Roosevelt broke with the man he anointed his successor? Well, I think two things were there. One is that Roosevelt was moving further away, even to the left, where then he and Taft had been together when they were in the cabinet together. And the progressive movement was moving further than Taft thought it should. And so the progressives go to Teddy and say that Taft hasn't really carried out his legacy, which really wasn't true. I mean, he gave more antitrust suits than Teddy did. He reserved a lot of conservation land. But he wasn't comfortable being a public figure, and the progressives realized they needed a public rhetorician to keep the movement going further. But I think also, to be honest, Teddy just missed being president so much. He never should have let it go in the first place. He probably would have been elected easily in 1908 when Taft succeeded him, but he had made a pledge that it would be like a third term. And he loved being in the center of action. You know, I mean, his daughter Alice said he wanted to be the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral and the baby at the baptism. <laughs> so I think part of it was just that compulsion that he couldn't wait. If he had not run against Taft, Taft probably might have lost to Wilson. But then he could have run in 1916. He probably would have beaten Wilson then because Charles Evans Hughes, the Republican, almost beat Wilson. And he was nowhere near as popular 
as was Teddy Roosevelt, but he was too impatient. He needed it then. These two men have such remarkable friendship, but their fathers are very different. Their personalities are so different. Spend a moment talking about the two fathers because they figure so prominently and they produce such disparate sons from such disparate uh, attitudes. No, exactly so. I mean, Teddy's father had come from a very wealthy family in New York, but had decided to become a philanthropist rather than a businessman. So he gave that sense of some social justice to the kid Teddy. But most importantly, because as you know from from reading the earlier books about Teddy, he suffered from life-threatening asthma, and he was becoming too frail and too timid, the father feared, and needed to somehow be jolted into refashioning his body and making himself strong and getting involved with physical activities. So he made the son promise, I will make my body, and that began this strenuous life that Teddy led, boxing, wrestling, you know, hunting, everything. I mean, he became a physical specimen. And yet, I think he got from the father, and he loved that father. The father dies when he's a sophomore at Harvard, and he feels like, you know, some chapter of his life has closed. And that was the first of a series of turmoils that he'd had. His first wife dies in childbirth, who he adores. And he said the only way he got through both of those deaths was through constant activity. It prevented overthought. And so that becomes his mantra the rest of his life. He never sits still. And then William Howard Taft's father, Mr. Taft, is this distant, remote, demanding. uh, And William Howard Taft becomes a pleaser as a result. But he's an accomplished man as well. He's the ambassador here and the ambassador there. And what extraordinary people the Tafts were. No, and he was an extraordinary man, too. And he loved Will Taft. I think the problem was that somehow... They wanted so much from their son, and he was the he was the, the golden child in some ways. And so he was constantly pressuring to work harder in school. Mediocrity will not be settling for you. And Taft, I think, suffered, I'm not sure why, from a lack of confidence, because they did love him. But somehow he must have felt that I have to keep performing to keep that love. So he didn't have that internal fire that Teddy had from the time he was little. Instead, he thought he was pleasing his parents and then later his wife, Nellie, by doing what they wanted him to do rather than what he himself wanted himself to do. You mentioned in the last segment that Teddy Roosevelt would have been comfortable with Twitter. Not William Howard Taft. He wasn't even comfortable when he was an accomplished Supreme Court argument. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he went on and on, too. I mean, he, he didn't know how to break things down. I mean, te- his wife, Nellie, would tease him. You know, when he would say people started drifting off after the first hour and a half, she said, well, maybe if you make your speeches a little shorter, they'll stay and listen to you. Uh, Doris Kearns, good one. Who would have thought that you'd have spent so much of your life concerned with the results of two Republican conventions in Chicago, 1860 and 1912? (laughs) And you open Team of Rivals with that convention. And here, obviously, it's toward the end of the book, the famous 1912 Bull Moose campaign. And you make a pretty good argument that, in fact, Teddy did get screwed by the the. Uh, allocation of delegates, but could he, did he really deserve the nomination? Well, I think what was happening then was he understood at the start of the campaign that primaries, direct primaries, would be his only real chance because Taft, as president, had control of the party machinery, as every president did before him. So the conventions before the primary season were pro-Taft, even if sometimes there were delegations that were committed to Teddy. And he almost made it. I mean, he almost had enough votes with the primaries, but not enough. So they got to the committees in the Chicago Convention, and of course, they're pro-Taft. So I'm not sure historians think that he could have actually won, but he probably did get screwed out of a number of votes. And then that allowed him to say, thief, this isn't fair, justice, and allowed him to have a, a real trumpet when he went out on the Bull Moose third party 
um, candidacy against against not only Taft but against his own Republican Party. And I'm thinking as well that if you got shot at point blank range in 2014, 16, 18, you would win by acclamation if you did what Roosevelt did, which was finish your speech before heading off to the to the uh, hospital doors. It was an astonishing story, but it was so typically Roosevelt. I mean, he's shot right in the chest. They they take his shirt off. It is a big blood spot. A bullet had entered his chest. And he insists on giving the speech until finally, after a, um, you know, an hour and a half, he says, okay, take me to the hospital. And he was in the hospital for a week, and they never did get the bullet out. It stayed with him the rest of his life. Now, I want to close what I think is the most poignant part of this book. I said it's a story, the, auto, uh, the biography of the friendship as well. They were so close, they became so bitterly divided. And then in their final years, largely because Taft was such a wonderful human being, they reconciled and resumed that friendship. That was a, as unexpected as it was pleasing way to end the book. I was so happy to find that. I decided to follow their relationship after 1912 to see if they did get back together. And the first few years, nothing much happened. They were brought together by allies, but there was still, as Taft said, armed neutrality. And then finally, only about eight months before Teddy dies, they meet just by chance in the Blackstone Hotel in the dining room. Taft throws his arms around Teddy. Teddy responds, sit down, and the entire dining room, there's a reporter there, thankfully, to record this, starts clapping, knowing they've come together. And then when Teddy died, not so long after, Taft told his sister, thank God this happened. I would have saddened me my whole life if we hadn't come back together again. I loved him so much. And a last question, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, William Howard Taft, famously a large man, a big man. Chris Christie now running possibly for president, also a large man, a big man. Did, did, it, did it bother, did it dog Taft the way that it's been an issue on and off for Christie? You know, I don't think it did because I don't think then that obesity was the same problem nationally as it is now. So that as long as I think uh, Mr. Christie is trying to get the weight off with that the surgery he had, showing that he recognizes that it is a problem for the country as well as himself, I think it makes it better for him. But in Taft's case, he went on diets, he'd go off them, he ended up 350 pounds. But at the time, you know, health was fat, you know, we're still close enough in that time to a healthy baby is a fat baby. Now we think very differently about it all. But then fragility was the problem. In fact, Taft's older brother died. So the parents were delighted that he was a fat child. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Another wonderful book, Doris Kearns Goodwin. I'm so glad you read it so carefully. I can tell it's a real treat for me. Thanks for spending extra time with us today. Thank you, too. Take care. 